0: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. You know the drill. If you like the pod, write a review, share with a friend, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got Brad Hargreaves, the founder of General Assembly and the founder of Common. We get into Common's role in the rental economy, where New York City is currently trending and what COVID will do to it, public versus private solutions for America's inequality and the future of cities. So kick back and enjoy. Brad Hargreaves. Oh my God, this is so exciting. Welcome to the pod, Brad. How you doing? I'm doing great, Eddie. Thank you so much for having me on. Very cool. Now I spent this past weekend just kind of listening to all of your podcast episodes, and I know people just are often drilling into how common works, even General Assembly stuff. You know, I don't want to get too much into General Assembly because I'll just won't be able to stop and it'll completely tank the entire episode and we won't get anywhere. Just thinking about all the crazy times. But we wanted to talk a lot about just on a more macro level, history, housing is ba- it's just so central to everything, including inequality and racism, but then also your thoughts on the future of cities. But before we dive into all of that, farm has a question for you.
1: Yeah. I got, I got a highbrow question for you, Brad. When you Google your name, the first thing that comes up is your face on the third eye blind drummers profile, how often do you get emails from people thinking that you're in third eye Blind, and are you actually in third eye Blind?
0: Well,
2: yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, about a decade ago, uh, you know, I left the band, um, and began my career, uh, in entrepreneurship, but I figured, uh, <laughs> good 20 year run starting when I was about six years old, uh, as the drummer for third eye blind, uh, Brad Hargraves. I still do get a lot of fan mail, uh, for Brad Hargraves. am I'm, I'm the less exciting of the two Brad Hargraves, but I'm slowly overtaking the drummer on the front page of, uh, of Google results. So that's been, uh, that's my life's work, right there.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, he's he's kind of like your arch enemy, without him even knowing
2: it. We've been having a, a thirty-five-year ongoing SEO uh, SEO battle there. Oh my god,
0: I loved your episode of VH1 Behind the Music, by the way, Brad. That was that was just it was, it was just delightful. So, <laughs> so when I hit you up and, and you know it's been a while since we chatted, I read so much history, and you've. Founded companies in two of the sectors that are just most central to American prosperity, the middle class, and just sort of they just have so much historical significance. Whenever I'm reading about uh, a history of of housing or, or or just even more particularly the New Deal, I always hear about for the GIs coming back or the civilians government creating policies for a 30-year job and a 30-year mortgage and coupling those things in order to create a middle class. And you founded companies that address both of those things, right, from a private industry standpoint, general assembly and common. When your annual talk about why is the rent so damn high, you, you mentioned it covers a lot of historical context around why you all are doing what you're doing, but then also contemporary inequality. Can you talk a little bit about your last talk and just, I mean, just the high points of it, I guess.
2: Yeah. So every year I give a talk to the company called Why Is the Rent So Damn High? And, you know, common at the end of the day is it's, it's an urban housing company. We're, we're about uh, making housing in cities better, more livable, more affordable. But we're facing, obviously, a lot of headwinds in, in any attempt to, to do that there are a lot of reasons why housing is as expensive as it is today, particularly in cities like New York, LA, San Francisco. So through the course of about 90 slides, I go into some of those reasons and how that has contributed to not just lack of affordability in cities, but also structural inequality, how that's contributed to perpetuation of poverty, certain neighborhoods, and then the role that gentrification plays in adjusting it in not always such great ways and how city and state and federal policies combine to make the problem worse and exacerbate the housing crisis. And finally, how a lot of well-meaning policies that on the surface sound very good actually can Contribute to continued high rents and lack of affordability in cities. So that huge passion of mine. It's something I've I've spent a lot of time working on, uh, and very close
0: to what we're doing day to day at Common. Got it. So the affordable housing crisis is such a buzzy term, and everybody says it. And I, you know, I don't know. People think about it in different ways, or how they even you know define it. How do you define? this modern affordability, affordable housing crisis in terms of, you know, what are the characteristics of it that make it a crisis right now?
2: Yeah, so the, the, the most common uh, statistics people cite are the percent, relate to the percent of income that people spend on rent. Um, so in a city like you, New York, uh, a majority of all renter households are considered rent burdened, which means they spend more than a third of their income on rent. Uh, and you can also look at the more extreme version, which is severely rent-burdened individuals who spend more than 50% of their income on rent, which is really seen as as you know truly unsustainable for a renter to spend more than 50% of their income on rent. They, they You just can't make the math work uh, long-term by doing that. Uh, but particularly in cities like New York, San Francisco, DC, et cetera, um, you have this problem where you have a big class of uh, rent-burdened individuals. And there's a lot of, I would say, subsidiary metrics you can look at. You can look at um, displacement and evictions. You can look at homelessness. Um, You can look at at newcomers and what they have to pay uh, in rent to get an average one-bedroom apartment. Um, in a city. Um, and you can also look at increasingly look at population growth. Um, you know, New York over the past couple decades uh, reversed a few long standing trends. One is that for the past two decades, New York has been growing uh, until about three years ago, until around 2016, 2017, New York started shrinking. Um, and there's a saying in the development world that if, 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 if you don't let na- neighborhoods grow, they shrink. Um, one big reason for that is you've seen a lot of repurposing of small multifamily buildings, small apartment buildings into single-family homes. It's really bad, um, has been bad for a while in, in the West Village, in Greenwich Village, uh, in the Upper East Side, but it's hit Brooklyn too. Um, Crown Heights, you saw a lot of investors going in, buying three-unit buildings, converting them to single-family homes. Uh, that's going to cause a population decrease. You also saw another interesting trend, which is uh, a reversal of a multi-century trend of decreasing household size. So one of the things that has been totally universal uh, across generations, across rich countries, poor countries, is as countries get wealthier, household size decreases. So we've gone in the past century from you know, an average household size of you know, four and a half people down to Around two people, two and a half per household. Until 2016, when that trend reversed. For the first time in US history, you saw an increase in average household size. And that's not because we're having more kids, that's not because we're getting married earlier, uh, that's actually because more people are living with roommates. They have to live with roommates to find an affordable place to live in cities. And it's remarkable that we've let cities get so unaffordable, so expensive that we've reversed this multi-century, multi-generational trend toward decreasing household size, one of the biggest hallmarks of, uh, of wealth and development in a society.
1: Uh, so Brad, I wanna j- jump in. Something I think about a lot, and I, I was on, I was listening to like Mark Andreessen, I was like on one of these like clubhouse talks that are going on now, and he was talking about, you know, what I hear a lot, which is, well, this is a big supply and demand issue. And, you know, if we create a lot more apartment units, then there's going to be more supply, which is going to drive price down, which I generally get. But something that always kind of gnaws at me at the same time is, you know, the last 20 or so years, there's kind of been like unprecedented uh, growth in how just leverage works within the capital markets for institutional and private buyers that are buying commercial real estate across all asset classes. And what that's done, as you know, is it, it's become this kind of game of hot potato a little bit within how they keep buying, how they keep flipping, and, and how they keep creating a situation where the next person that buys has to keep just jacking rents because they'll never make it back. Their LPs will hate them. They won't be able to sell, so on and so forth. So they're they're in this consistent game that they're driving everything up. And then we have this other situation where Tech and certain industries have allowed a certain percentage of the population to have kind of unparalleled growth and probably what their medium income is. While at the same time, the other group of the population, majority of the population, obviously has been flat, if not in the negative. So you have these two sides where <clears throat> there is one group who can potentially pay three, 000, four thousand dollars in the West Village or Chelsea or wherever else and be okay. But now there's this other group who's still stuck at fifty to seventy thousand dollars. And so they're just going further and further. And like, if Jim was on the pod, Jim's our fiery one. I wish he was on. You know, Jim grew up in Crown Heights, and he's like, "What the fuck, Farb?" He's like, "I got all these apartments around me. They're worth twenty five hundred dollars. Like, no one in my like community can like afford this. Like, what is this?" And the funny,
0: amazing Jim impression. By the way, I just had to, I just had to say that.
1: <laughs> we'll have to play it back. <laughs> And like, but the interesting thing is if you told, you know, someone uh, who was living in the West village that they could get, you know, a one bedroom for $2,500 in Brooklyn, they'd be like, what a deal. Right. (laughs) It's like that whole mentality is work. So it's like, at what, to me, it's, it's this weird flip where like, I get it on like a pure capitalistic business sense that these are where the numbers are. And if people want to be in the game, they have to buy the stuff. But at what point do we just let this be like, Totally unfettered. Um, because it, it seems like to me, I've seen my friends in real estate make a tremendous amount of money, even with blips, uh, over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and still, everyone around me is living with roommates into their 30s. And that's just like an insane thing.
2: Well, I, I would say it's, it's, you know, you have to really step back and look at a lot of multi decade trends in development in New York City. Um, and to see that, even though there's a lot of very prominent examples of egregious and extravagant development, uh, say the pencil towers and a lot of the luxury developments in Midtown, a lot of the condo developments in soma, uh, we're developing way fewer units today than in a lot of historical periods of growth uh, in major cities uh, so New York today is 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 close to uh you know the the peak back kind of pre-2008 of development but it's a fraction of a fraction of the housing stock we were building in the 1960s 1970s or sorry nineteen sixties, 1950s 1940s and that is a fraction of what we were building in near the turn of the century Um, and remember it's important to understand the historical context of when the new york city brownstone which we as, you know, as New Yorkers revere as this, you know, hallmark of quality development, neighborhood character, whatever term you, you, you use, um, when they were built in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they were panned as, you know, mass market cookie cutter, greedy developers, uh, all the same terms people today use for, you know, Gary Barnett and Extell building 432 park. One of the, you know, the trash basket tower, those same terms, those same, uh, terminology was applied to the people building New York city brownstones in, you know, park slope, crown Heights, bed, Stuy, et cetera. Um, so that a $20 million price tag, though,
1: what, in, in real terms, was it about the same back then? I can't imagine.
2: No. So brownstones were were workforce houses. Right, right, right. Yeah. The better analogy might be, as opposed to 432 Park, uh, the better analogy might be the uh, kind of ugly five-story boxes, you know, you see derided on Twitter as gentrification architecture. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's a reason why people do that, you know, that yeah. you have a... Uh, a, a steel uh, steel cinder block base, and then a you know four story stick frame. Uh, so there's a reason a lot of those those buildings. You, you got you got to have the lettering on the address that
1: really nails it. There's like the certain like font that they put. So
2: yeah, I mean it's 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 hard to defend you know 432 Park. Although I, if you want me to attempt a defense of them, I will. Is uh, I do think they serve a purpose. Do you really? Uh, What's the purpose? Um, you know, I would rather people who are buying those units, buy those units, then buy three unit brownstones and convert them to single family homes.
0: Hmm.
2: I would rather if, if you look at that from a pure just from a pure just availability of housing stock. Yeah. Like, great. That is a place that is going to sop up that speculative capital that wants to park in New York real estate. I. I believe if that building didn't exist, that speculative capital would still be coming to New York and it would find itself competing against more regular buyers or causing displacement. So if you wanna like, (laughs) uh, there's a lot to hate. There's certainly a lot to hate about them, but I think they do uh, serve some purpose in the market. Uh, But back back to the point we were talking about around just the, the volume of building that's happening on a historical context is still really low. And a lot of it is happening in, frankly, in, in I would say inefficient ways um, due to the way New York City is zoned. So in 1961, New York City passed a landmark zoning code uh, which limited what can be built on certain lots. And over time, uh, the city has done several rezonings and those rezonings, have generally fallen in neighborhoods that are not able to oppose the rezoning. They don't have enough political power. They don't have enough organization. So primarily you've seen poor neighborhoods get rezoned. Uh, Often neighborhoods that are further from transit get rezoned. So you're starting to see a, a, a strange, now that development is returning, a strange outcome in cities like New York and San Francisco where development is happening, density is happening in really awkward areas. Like the biggest residential development happening in San Francisco right now um, is happening in a Superfund site down in the old Bayshore Harbor, just to the just to the east of Dog Patch. And the reason why that zoning was able to go through is because there are really no neighbors around there. There's no wealthy homeowners to fight the development. So you're going to put 10,000 renters on a Superfund site. Mm. Same thing happens in New York. I just saw a project announced the other day in East Flatbush, which is a 15 minute bus ride from a subway stop. It's like a 13 story tower going up in East Flatbush, a poor historically black neighborhood. The reason why that's happening there is because you can't build in wealthy neighborhoods. They've pretty much forbidden it. You know, most neighborhoods like the West Village, Greenwich Village, Park Slope, they've lowered their zoning to a point where you can't really build anything new. So that's going to create a shortage in those neighborhoods, which pushes that investment out into areas that, frankly, it shouldn't be. Right. I have a question for you. Do you think that, um, like when it comes to maybe like affordable or
1: some types of housing, that just private developers sh- shouldn't be in the game and maybe it's just a headache for private developers anyway?
2: i don 't think you're ever going to see a market rate solution for very low income housing. I think you just do the math and say, okay, you know a unit even if you 're able to cut a lot from construction costs and, and get a lot of efficiencies there it 's going to be tough to build a unit for say under two hundred thousand dollars so if you 're looking for rents say sub a thousand dollars a month it's going to be very hard for the private market to Ever address that need? Unfortunately, you know the Faircloth Amendment prohibits the construction of public housing in the United States. Public housing is one of those things. It's kind of like mental institutions. We did it so badly
0: as a country that we decided to ban the entire concept. That's an, that's an interesting. Sorry to cut you off, Brad, but I, I would I would push back a little bit on public housing i think the way public housing became bad in america's eyes is i mean you you mentioned workforce housing and like coastal cities industrialized because they needed workers in the war industries during world war one and world war ii and public housing initially um, was constructed for middle-income families to come and work in these war industries and they worked really well and sort of the Public Works Administration in the the 1930s, under FDR, constructed these public housing sites to address these really, these much needed needs for these workers and they did them in a way that they worked really well. Mm -hmm. And ultimately they ended up segregating areas that weren't segregated before then. So you're getting these all white public housing projects and an all black public housing project that probably had scattered housing before that and was a little bit more integrated prior to that. But then after World War II and the big post-war boom and the suburbanization and and William Levitt, and we can talk about all those things. And and also I think, I wanted to get your thoughts, sorry, a quick side note. I think the reason single family suburbanization subdivisions were so popular was because of this, they were primarily an anti-communist effort which is interesting. I want to touch on that a little bit, but I think the reason that that happened, folks went out to the suburbs and it ended up being cheaper than what they were paying in rent in the cities. And and the creation of the 30-year mortgage left all of the low-income majority black populations in urban centers and cities, and they divested uh, public housing as a public good, and they got really bad. And then through a process of racialization, they said, oh, well, it was just always bad. And we should have never done it anyway. And I think that that is a huge contributor to the affordable housing crisis and the housing boom. I mean, so I said a lot of things there, but from the public housing, it worked and it worked really well initially. I, I, I just think it, it, it got a bad name after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like the initial intention
2: and implementation of public housing was spot on. It was certainly corrupted in the mid century partly because we stopped investing in it. we stopped building public housing public housing became therefore a concentration of poverty and became associated with a lot of uh, a lot of social ills and frankly the the private sector did used to have a big role in this with you know the residential hotel stock what we in new york city today would call sros You know, that were similar, very similar arc to public housing. They had a really important role in the first half of the 20th century. They were a big part of urban housing stock. About 20% of Americans who lived in cities lived in SROs. Um, And there were SROs for middle class Americans, for families, just generally meant that uh, the units didn't have kitchens. People ate in communal dining halls downstairs. In fact, there's a funny story in a, in a great book called Living Downtown by Paul Groff uh, about residential hotels. Um, in the 1920s, when, city, when, when, when hotels started introducing room service, people got really up in arms about it because they viewed the communal dining hall as a fundamentally kind of American and democratic institution and didn't like the idea of people eating alone in their rooms. But you're spot on that there, there was a lot of I would say, racial drivers of, you know, the disinvestment from the public housing stock. It got replaced in some respects by Section 8, which we continue to underinvest in Section 8. Uh, But at least Section 8 represents an integrated view of, you know, people taking units within mixed income buildings. And we tried to replace it with inclusionary zoning. I'm not a big fan of inclusionary zoning. I'm happy to share why. But the short answer is it's, it, it tends to, as opposed to public housing, which is taxing the state to build housing for low-income individuals, it's taxing the renter, the market rate renter, to provide housing for low-income individuals, which leads overall to a compounding of the, the housing shortage. And you've seen this in a lot of inclusionary zoning uh, proposals. So I, I'm actually an advocate of repealing the Faircloth Amendment and, and and bringing back a real investment in in public housing in the United States.
0: Yeah, I you know that kind of brings me to I love just talking about housing. I think there are just larger social forces, identity drivers to how we talk and think and treat housing in this country, and there are just big political reasons why we do so. But you know, kind of keeping it tighter, not to spiral out. Too much is with you. Mentioned common, predominantly tackling urban centers and coastal cities first and foremost, right? I mean, you know, obviously you and you said this before. General Assembly, a lot of the students coming in would just have housing issues and constraints that would you know hurt their chances to come and take classes. Uh, you know, with with us back in the day, um, and that led to uh, kind of a, an obvious. Um, need for which you you created a company to to address, but at the same time, those these coastal cities just have deep, deep histories of structural racism. And you're probably, you're just, I think, just more learned in just the zoning laws and the zoning histories from a local level more than I am, I think from a federal standpoint, a lot of those programs. How do these, re- I mean, I was going to say relics of segregation. There is still segregation, but the zoning laws that existed yesterday maybe repealed today or they still exist how does that mess with what you're trying to do with common like is that something that is a problem that you're you're seeing well i'll give you an example so there are laws on the books
2: in many u.s cities that restrict the number of unrelated people who can live together you know so for instance in philadelphia uh, we can't build anything larger than a three-bedroom co-living suite because no more than three unrelated individuals can live together and these rules are really you know they seem ridiculous but then you read the rule and it's even more ridiculous because effectively what it is is it's the state legislating what is a family because they have specific definitions of a family and 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 blood relation and you know, most East Coast and West Coast cities have deprecated these laws in practice. They don't really enforce them. Um, but then you go to the middle of the country and they really do enforce these laws, often with some fairly crazy results. There's a story that came out of St. Louis, Missouri, I believe, a few years ago, where a, an unmarried couple with kids was actually evicted from their rental house under an unrelated individual's law statute. Technically, since they weren't married and there were more than three people living in this house, uh, they constituted uh, an illegal household. So there's a lot of like really nasty stuff when you dig in here that is about the state using land use law to attempt to regulate social and moral structures and this is really what it gets down to is in the mid-century the united states for many reasons some racial some moral some political decided that one hammer they would use to impose a mid-century concept of the american dream was through regulating the physical structures of buildings. And a lot of modern zoning code, you know, housing maintenance codes, multiple dwelling laws, they have a lot of different names, uh, which include these unrelated individual statutes, go back to that mid-century notion that you can create the shining city on a hill where everyone has a white picket fence and a single family home by actually regulating certain dimensions of certain spaces, certain physical constructs, things like that. And you see this a lot in the middle of the country with minimum lot sizes, where, you know, if you want to build a house, you need to build it on half an acre of land, you have to have a certain setback from the street, it gets extraordinarily detailed. And there's a lot of different ways that cities implement
0: this view of the world. Do you, with the coastal cities, those are obviously no brainer markets to tackle first. How rural do you envision Common, getting, or maybe maybe you all will will spin up another brand to tackle more rural areas, and maybe you just won't ever tackle it. I know that you you mentioned this before. You grew up in segregated Arkansas. You you mentioned I think maybe was it was a pod before you mentioned it. There's a black gas station and a white gas station, but there wasn't much of an economy there. And you're talking about rural America that most coastal city people don't even can't even fathom, really. Yeah. Is there a place for common there? Is you know, is there a lot of housing need there?
2: Yeah, so a um, couple, of, couple of points. And you're right, I did. I, I grew up in rural Arkansas, really out in the country. You know, to give you an example of, of how country and how segregated it was, there was a white gas station and a black gas station, but there was, you know, two sides of the town. There was the white part of the town, the black part of the town. And growing up, we always referred to the black part of the town as the quarters. And uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I understood that that was a reference to a plantation. Wow. And the slaves lived in the quarters. Yeah, so deep. It wasn't until I got I understood what that was a reference to. Yeah, it's so deep. And that's that's still what they call it today. So that aside, I don't know how you can move on from that, but um, so a couple of things we're doing. <laughs> so we, we, we actually launched a new brand earlier this year called NOAA. It stands for Naturally Occurring Affordable Housing. And what it is is, you know, seeing that outside of major cities, There's a lot of housing stock that is just naturally affordable. It's like you go to, you know, one of our first markets is Winchester, Virginia, which is a, I would say, mid-sized city, about two hours outside DC. And you can just go rent an apartment for $1,200 a month, like a nice one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartment. And there's really no rent growth there. It's not that kind of market. People aren't really speculating in real estate. But the average quality of management of these properties is really, really low. And there's just, you know, you go in and it's like a box of receipts in the closet. And like, you know, that's how it's being managed. So we started this brand to, there's no co-living involved. It's just kind of the, the tech that we have, the management platform we have going in and saying, hey, we can do this better. We can have a better tenant experience, but also basically a better interface for the owner. So they're not dealing with like pen and paper reporting but there's actually a, a higher reporting standard so that we're super excited about you know we uh it's the fastest growing part of common right now
1: I, I think that's super interesting and i'm wondering uh one what what's kind of like i'm sure you have different properties but like in new york or dc or sf what are like approximately like a room rate for someone entering a common living space
2: yeah totally so we we, we try to aim for a 25 percent discount to a studio in the market that's fully loaded so including Wi-Fi, utilities, cleaning, kitchen and bathroom supplies for co-living room at Common. So if a studio goes for $2,000 a month, a room at Common will go for $1,500 a month, all included. And that we've seen a lot of demand at that price point. It's generally an underserved segment. Do, Do you find,
1: because obviously, I mean, obviously living in these cities, like that is a great rate, you know, it's obviously all like relative to everything, but do you find that with just the cost of all the different things here that 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 model fully works or is this new model actually something at scale that is actually it's like you you know you were you were addressing this initial issue obviously that you saw back in the day and it's clearly serving a need because people do need to have something that is coming in under market but at the same time you know running a big company there's all sorts of things that go into it is this other model potentially one more scalable, it sounds like, and two, potentially actually a better business that all at the same time doesn't get into like these dynamics of like how much you're charging people, which must get really annoying because everyone's always like, you're charging too much or this or that. And it's like, that's probably like, you're like, I'm just trying to solve problems here, but this is, there are still market conditions. So I'm wondering if like, that's kind of almost like a solve, that's actually like a nice added element to a potential new business, especially if you said it's the fastest growing part of
2: the business. Yeah, so here's what I'd say. is is, is, a, is a great model for both the renter and the owner. Uh, but in order to really get that win-win, you have to build it from scratch. You have to do ground up. Because you know, if, if you want to get real affordability, a lot of that affordability comes from having more large bedrooms, sharing a kitchen. And we try to have as many bedrooms with private bathrooms as possible. We, you know, we, we there's a lot of design elements that you really need to do from scratch, which is great. We currently have sixteen thousand co-living beds under construction right now in twenty-five cities. So there's a lot coming up, but that takes a while. On average, it takes about two and a half years from signing a new deal to that building being open. Um, and there's a lot of risks along the way. So one thing we, we like about Noah from a business standpoint is we can take over a building immediately. Uh, we send a SWAT team down there, we take it over, we assess it, we get all the books onto our technology. So it's, it's I don't know if it's more scalable, scalable is kind of a funny term when you're talking about, you know, sticks and bricks anyway. Yeah. I mean, do you see, do you see yourself as a venture business or as more a traditional real estate business? No, we're, we're, we're a venture business. We're a management yeah. company, that we don't, we don't own any real estate, Right. you know, we, we kind of are that bridge between the owners and the tenants. Uh, so then how does
1: that work with the construction? You partner with a developer who builds right. it and then you're the management?
2: Got it. Exactly right. We're the designer and the manager of the buildings. We're, we're never a developer. Hmm. Um, that's super interesting. I didn't realize that. Uh,
1: well, can we, we've been talking a lot of past and present I want to, well, we saw some time, you know, (laughs) actually talk future and everyone's been sharing I'm blanking on his name, James, something or other. He had some article like the death of New York city and everyone's like, fuck this guy. Who is he anyway? And I actually don't even know who he is. I I, it's there was, there was enough vitriol that I didn't really follow up with it, but I told Eddie and Jim back in March, the second things started changing, I go, you're going to start hearing all these people who are our age start getting out of the city and I get that that skews more white or more affluent or whatever, however you want to put it. But I, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen the numbers yet. I think some numbers are coming out. But I would say that people I know in their 30s, early 40s who might maybe were like, we're lifers or we're going to at least have one kid are buying upstate. They're buying in the burbs. They're moving back to where they came from. You know, for you, is this. Do you see this as just a healthy market correction? This is going to be a year to two and all, all the good things will happen from it? Or, you know, how are you all forecasting?
2: Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a great question. Obviously something we're, we're thinking a lot about right now, the future of these cities. Here's what I would say. I am long-term bullish on cities in general, even New York and San Francisco. But I think there's been way too much focus on people moving out families, rich people, people who probably were going to, you know, had one foot out the door anyway, and not enough on immigrants not coming in to replace them. Mm. New York, SF, DC, all these cities have had net negative domestic migration for decades. Like they've always lost more people domestically than they've brought in. What's changed is that migration both young people coming from other cities in the US, but mostly international migration, people coming from other countries has really dropped. It's particularly dropped since COVID. So there's probably been some acceleration of people who are gonna leave New York in the next three or four years, all suddenly decided to go ahead and leave New York, but that's really been compounded. and, And the bigger concern I have is will we start seeing people come in to replace them. And that, you know, that's why this election is important. Are, do you all own in Canada? Because I feel like I've read that, you know, places like Toronto, yeah. and Montreal, are like huge net gains on all these immigration rules totally. that we have. I've heard that as well, is that they, they've become real destinations for, you know, people who want to come and study and work. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a huge loss for the United States, and particularly for American cities, if we don't, rebuild our pipeline of, of international talent uh, coming to the US. And it's, it's it, you know, it's certainly bad for the people who aren't coming here, uh, but it's bad for America too. So I, I think that's really my worry is, you know, can we re-embrace immigration as an engine of economic dynamism and what makes America great as opposed to a tax?
1: Do you think, um, Going back to Eddie's kind of rural thing, I, I, I wanted to kind of push on that a bit, but I do see, you know, all these like techies, Silicon Valley, whatever, people that are on ayahuasca trips, but have a lot of cash, all like talking on forums about how they're buying up, you know, big acreages or like little, like these little like municipality towns that you can buy for like a million and a half. There's all these like things coming about uh, and obviously everyone's you know, wants to create this kind of communist life in this era of potentially remote working. Do you think there's actually going to be a lot to this or it's just going to be a few kind of one-offs like it always has been? And, And I'm asking that really is, is there actually a real estate play to be made to incorporate around this in these places like Utah and upstate and, you know, some of these other clusters where people seem to be looking?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're actually working on a, a concept of a remote work hub, um, something that incorporates kind of the best of living and working and amenities. And we we put it out as an RFP because we wanted to, you know, talk to governments, talk to large private landowners about the right place to put something like this. Uh, but I think it has to be anchored in affordability as opposed to some specific communal sensibility. I feel like speaking my know, language. You know, nobody really in our view buys into community in the abstract. It's a very, very strange and difficult thing to sell. People buy into specific communities, but as but specific communities don't make for great real estate plays. Mm. You know, one thing I like to look at if, you, if if we're talking about the future of cities is, you know, two cities that arose in the United States over the past two decades They're not really what Silicon Valley probably dreams them to be. You know, one is the villages in Florida, uh, which, you know, is a giant retirement community. It is extremely conservative. It voted for, uh, it went for Trump by, I believe, you know, north of 70% voted for Trump. It's 90, more than 95% white. The median age, I believe is 71, but it went from nothing like Florida swampland to a city of 180,000 people in the wow. course of two decades. Like they just built a new city Yeah, and it's, it's, it's nuts. Like I have a, uh, a relative who lives there and you go through the process of buying a house and you basically, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a wizard. Like you go through each step and you pick what you want and there's very limited selections and like out comes your house at the end. So, so that is either utopian or dystopian depending on your view uh, the second example, which is even more reactionary, is a small city that emerged from nothing, about 60 miles north of New York. A town called uh, Kiryas Yoel, which is a, entirely populated by the Satmar sect of Hasidic Judaism. They kind of branched off from the Williamsburg Satmars in Brooklyn, and um, you know, kind of went from zero to. 25,000, 30,000 people in about uh, two decades. And they started taking over kind of the local government in Orange County, New York, took over the school board, took over, uh, eventually incorporated as their own town, upzoned everything. I mean, they're, they're, they're building four and five-story buildings uh, right next to each other. Both really interesting examples. By the way, the poorest zip code in the United States is CurioscoL, like, the median age in Curio it's the other end of the spectrum from uh, the villages. Median age is 13.
0: They have a lot of kids. Oh, sounds like a reservation or something. Yeah. But by the way, my uh, my grandparents live in the village. Oh, they do. So, yeah, it's, they, and I've been there a bunch of times to visit them. Yeah, it's it was, it's I my grandfather, who uh, was in the Navy. That's this is my the side of my family that immigrated from the Dominican Republic. He lived in the Navy. He was a sonar guy on, in the Navy. And they moved to the villages. Oh Man, when was that, man? It was probably like seven, eight, nine years ago when it was just kind of its early phase of accommodating the greatest generation. But they've been ballooning inventory, just waiting for the boomers to come. And it's, it's crazy, crazy construction. And I've been there and it's just like... It is the opposite. It is the anti-nursing home. It's they got golf carts, and it is just a little city. <sighs> that is a great question, though. Utopian or dystopian? I a little bit of both, maybe. I don't know, man. It's they love it, but it's very self-contained, and they've been pretty good about COVID. But they are very conservative, like you said. So maybe those things seem to be diametrically opposed. But you know, I guess I guess it's been okay.
1: Ed, I want to ask one real quick question. Um, Brad, I was thinking, you know, like in New York, for instance, like the real estate board in New York has just crazy power, right? And I would say that realist, you know, most cities, you know, some of the most powerful people are the real estate authorities. And, you know, I loved when you talked about some of these new areas and you, that you're thinking of, like creating and putting out this RFP and how it has to be based and just, you know, affordability. And I think sometimes these, these bigger lobbying powers and affordability, you know, running in contrast. But, you know, are there any, like, you know, just general legal rules that you see out there that you think, have, you know, the industry has fought to keep up, but actually by lessening or getting rid of? Would A, really kind of do them a public kind of affairs good uh, and generally just be a good win for the people?
2: Yeah, totally. Um, so <laughs> I I I can't I personally don't believe Rebney has nearly as much power as people assume they do. I think, you know, you've seen a lot of laws that have put you know, a huge hit on the real estate industry in New York come into force in the last couple of years uh, that Redney was very viciously opposed to. And so I I don't, I think people assume they probably have more power than they, you know, than they really do. And they certainly represent kind of the old school vanguard of old New York real estate families. Uh, Probably if there's one law, local or state that I would like to see proposed that is, or like to see repealed, that is supported by the real estate industry, it's probably Prop 13 in California. What Prop 13 did is it in 1973 froze property taxes for mm. single family yeah. homeowners. Uh, yeah. And it can't be reset unless a home is sold. So you have a lot of people in California sitting on multi million dollar homes paying nothing in property taxes. And it's caused, it's, it's a big driver of California's budget crisis. Unlike a lot of other states like Texas, it doesn't have the property tax lever to pull. So it has to just keep increasing income taxes, keep increasing capital gains taxes, which tend to be more punitive to activity than property taxes. So it also, it creates a bit of a landed gentry concept because you, can, you can't sell your house there's a huge penalty if you sell your house, but you can pass your house down generational. So you see a lot of people say, you know, I'm not going to sell my house, my $3 million house, because then I would have this huge property tax bill. It would lose a ton of its value. So instead I'm just going to give it to my kids and they'll give it to their kids. And you see, you'll see these houses pass down generationally, which I think, uh, you know, one of the worst things real estate can do is, is, uh, exacerbate intergenerational wealth differences yeah it's really bad at that i mean i think if you look at you know just to turn to the race you know turn back to the racial angle again if you look at the disparity between black and white wealth in the united states um, a lot of it goes back to you know white wealth was created in the last 70 years of home price appreciation because whites were allowed to buy in neighborhoods and they were allowed to get mortgages in neighborhoods uh, that were off limit to. African-Americans and Hispanics. So real estate has a huge impact on intergenerational inequality. Uh, And I think to the extent government is making that worse with things like Prop 13 in California, that's a really, a really bad thing. There are laws that I would like to see enacted that are opposed by big real estate. Uh, My favorite law in the books right now, and we probably have some real estate partners who would kill me for saying this, but I do like this law. It's called Toba, and it's in DC. I, I don't know of it anywhere else. It's in DC. And what it does is it gives tenants in the aggregate a right of first refusal on the sale of their building. So if you're a tenant in a building and your building is going to be sold, if you get together with your fellow tenants, you can match that offer hmm. buy your building yourselves. Hmm. Um, And what that does, it creates a really interesting process in practice where owners have to get their tenants bought in to a sale in order to actually make the sale happen, to get through that topa hurdle. A really interesting, I think, novel solution to a lot of displacement and renter issues
0: that come from building sales. Wow. I love the landed gentry. You made me, I've been going in this deep dive of 17th century European aristocracy and particularly just how the nobility class was constructed. And I liken the way that we've suburbanized this country as a part of New Deal policies and who could own land and who could not. As sort of a uh, a bright line of nobility and non-nobility, and there are so many characteristics around those things. I think that's probably a bigger pod. But I just a larger question. I'm not, I, I'm unsure if common is meant to tackle this thing. But like, just your your larger thoughts around modern inequality and addressing it through public versus private solutions. Like, what do you? Which one do you go for more? Look, I'm a I'm a
2: believer in capitalism. I really do, and so I, I, I believe that with some exceptions uh, that the free market can address a lot of society's challenges. I think when you're talking about fundamental inequality today, a lot of the drivers of fundamental inequality today can be traced back to government action. And I'm not saying all oh, government action is bad, and in fact, it might take government action to resolve the problem, but remember redlining was a government policy. Exactly. It it, it mirrored private sector and individual racism, but it was a government policy. Mm -hmm. Mortgage tax credits that further incentivize single family home ownership and are a huge, huge just giveaway to people with a lot of household wealth today. Those are government policies. So... You know, when Bernie Sanders, who I'm not politically aligned with, come out and said, we have socialism for the rich and capitalism for everyone else, he's kind of right. Like, I'd rather focus on, in my personal view, breaking down socialism for the rich than creating a lot of government intervention and further market distortion for everyone else. I
0: think that maybe a common rebuttal to that would be yes inequality was constructed through government policies redlining is a government government instrument but it did for those who got it it did really well for them you know it, so like the greatest generation was built on the GI bill and FHA loans and revolving consumer credit and it just sort of unbounded just uh, this new class and their descendants mm-hmm. and, and the grandkids and entrepreneurship and the fact that that is, in fact, actually anti-capitalist. Why don't we just do that for the poor in a way that can catch them up and then maybe we can get to the business of reevaluating capitalism as a whole? Like I said,
2: I'm a capitalist. I'm not a libertarian. Uh, so I do think there is right. <laughs> there, a government, there is a, a meaningful role for government here. Yeah. You know, what I would say is, and what I think trips up a lot of urban liberals when they think about addressing these issues is they reflexively, you know, do things like oppose new development. And when you really drill into that, you're like, well, what do you want the outcome to be? What, you know, what do you think should happen here? It just comes down to, well, when we completely dismantle capitalism and replace it with a socialist society, then like it'll all be solved. And until then, we don't need to create more affordable housing. And that's crazy. Like, that's crazy. We have to fix the problems we have today with the systems we have and the tools we have. And so I think a lot of the housing issues that we're facing, or I would say perhaps the lack of solutions today, do go back to a lot of views among, you know, urban leftists that you know, we have to dismantle capitalism first and then we'll solve the problems.
0: And I think the error is in their conception of what capitalism actually is and how they think about how it's historically historically existed in America. I mean, other societies practice a form of capitalism if you just design it as free market um, with the ability to own private property and the flow of goods and services. But it is our brand of capitalism that I think is part and parcel to our long history of labor exploitation that completely perverts it. And we've never actually had, like you said, a true market economy in the Like we've never actually done it. And, and I think that it is that urban leftists attribute all of that to just capitalism and be like, oh, that's why capitalism is bad. Well, it's actually not capitalism. There's these other things that happen to work against what capitalism could be. So, I mean, it's complicated, man. But, you know,
1: you mean we're not going to solve it right now? I thought, I, I thought we were about to just stamp this and jump on TV. So we, we got it. Um, Brad, I, I got one just like simple kind of question. I'm just curious your take on and, and we'll wrap here. But, um, you know, Airbnb was headed towards an IPO. I don't know what's happening now. I do know that they just had to do a big round. But let's just say that we have a vaccine in the next six months. Things start getting back. Numbers start recovering. The IPO maybe late next year. How does that impact your kind of what you guys are doing if at all?
2: Look, I mean, um I would say it's been nice uh, to not have to compete with short-term rentals since COVID hit. I did see the impact of short-term rentals. It's very clear to see the impact of Airbnb units on affordability. And I think that that, that a lot of the explanation for the decrease in urban rents we've seen since COVID is actually a flood of short-term rental units, uh, returning to the long-term rental market. Uh, we regularly saw owners uh, that we were talking, you know, that we were discussing commons management with say, hey, you know, I could make these rents, you know, 2,500 a month. If I listed it on Airbnb, I'm only making 1,800 a month with common, I'm going to go with Airbnb or I'm going to go with Sonder or one of their, one of their operators. So. I, I think cities as a whole need a better solution to how do you avoid uh, repurposing apartments to short-term rental units. And there's a lot of I could spend a lot of time on on the short-term rental industry and kind of some of the weird financial quirks of it. But you can definitely see the impact it has had on on affordability in urban hubs.
0: Got it, Ed. Well, let's, I mean, Brad, once again, thank you so much for doing this. I think there's well, one thing I wanted to say. Ashley O'Reilly is a huge fan of the pod and I didn't give her a heads up that you were going to be on on this episode. So she's going to get a nice surprise, but um, I don't know the last time you talked to her, but I just think that was just a funny thing thank that I guys. wanted to Have let actually. you know. <laughs> uh,
2: it's uh, It's been, been quite a while.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it, Brad. It's awesome having you. you so much. Take care. Peace.